0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Ajit Varki. I'm the co-director of the UCSD SOC Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. And uh, Rusty Gage, my co-director here from the SOC, sends his regrets for not being here, for his unavoidably detained elsewhere and Margaret Schoeninger will join us uh, shortly. Now, you may be wondering what anthropogeny is. It's actually a very old term, more than a century old, that we have sort of resurrected, and it specifically relates to the investigation of the origin of humans. So our mission statement is as follows. To use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines in a transdisciplinary way, to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon, while doing something that humans seem to do all the time, uh, trying to minimize complex organizational structures and hierarchies and avoiding unnecessary paperwork and bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, our goals are primarily intellectual. Now, I have to make, uh, give very special thanks to our major sponsors of the symposium, the G. Harold and Leela Y. Mathers Charitable Foundation New York, Uh, Jim Handelman, the director, is here, and to Annette Merl-Smith, and they're supposed to sit in the front row, the special seats, and they're seating up in the back there. (coughs) I also have a very special uh, privilege today of having a special guest of honor uh, who we only managed to get on board after we printed the program, and so I'm very pleased to invite... uh, Dr. Bill Brody, the new president of the Salk Institute, uh, to say a few words.
2: Thank you, Ajit. Many people know or think they know what anthropologists do. They may know what um, people in the arts communities do. But if you ask uh, many people what scientists do, they just think about test tubes, but that's about it. And one of the exciting things about science and discovery today is that the things that are going on in test tubes actually have direct relevance to fields uh, outside that. And, and the idea that we could have an assembly of geneticists, neuroscientists, anthropologists, um, people from the music and arts community all talking together about a common theme was unthinkable. Um, but it is the Thinkable today, and I think it's, it's exciting. Um, CARTA has been going on for, what, i 10 years or so, but it's been mostly meetings, uh, closed meetings with uh, various people uh, from the fields, of specialists talking to one another, and I thank uh, Jim Handelman who, uh, from the Mathers Foundation who pushed the idea that this really ought to be opened up to the public, and I really support that. So I think we're all in for an exciting treat, and I think we're in for many years of this kind of excitement, seeing uh, what goes on in scientific laboratories coupled with things that are of interest to all of us. So thank you for coming. Enjoy the symposium, and uh, best wishes.
1: Thank you, Bill. Now it's my pleasure to briefly introduce the chair of the symposium, Jean-Pierre Changeau, from the Institute Pasteur. He's here on a visiting sabbatical both with the uh, Skagg School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, the Kavli Institute, and with CARTA. Not only is he a renaissance man in uh, molecular neuroscience, but he's also uh, a great uh, appreciator and collector of art. Jean-Pierre is a member of about all the academies you can think about on both sides of the Atlantic. And his achievements uh, would go into pages, so I'll simply introduce him to chair the symposium.
3: Thank you very much, Ajit, for this uh, very kind introduction. And uh, first of all, Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you uh, for um, the courage, the audace, and the uh, insight, you had to organize uh, organize a symposium the evolutionary origin of art and uh, aesthetics. And uh, I wish to say that this is uh, uh, one of the most uh, fascinating kind of topics one may imagine, uh, and uh, for several reasons. First of all, because uh, uh, the conviction is that um, artistic activity is something which uh, would escape or resist to scientific investigation uh, ever. And uh, I hope uh, you are going to be uh, convinced that uh, this is uh, something which is uh, not true and that, uh, indeed, art may be uh, 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 amenable to uh, scientific examination. The second um, uh, challenge I would like to say is that, uh, in addition, uh, we have to um, negotiate uh, the uh, notion that um, uh, artistic uh, activity can be examined within the framework of uh, evolution. And um, this is, uh, of course, uh, a challenge that we have to to meet and uh, to try to decide what is uh, properly human, what is already present in humans, how does it develop throughout um, uh, child development, but of course throughout uh, evolution um, in the proper sense uh, during the past uh, millenniums or millions of years. So uh, this is, of course, uh, as I say, a challenge, but um, I don't think you are going to expect any definitive scientific answer to this question. Uh, But I hope that at the end of this um, symposium, you shall have uh, the uh, notion that this is indeed a solid program of research for the next decades. And um, this will be possible because... I think we have uh, different disciplines uh, interacting on uh, this uh, important program. And um, I think uh, CARTA, uh, thanks to uh, Professor uh, Barkey, has been specially organized, as he said, to to meet uh, this kind of uh, exchange, encounter, and uh, I hope uh, progress in the knowledge of uh, this theme on the evolutionary origin of art and aesthetics.
0: What an exciting afternoon we've had talking about the origins of art and I'm going to continue in the tradition but compare the uh, origins of language and the origins of language in the child. I think that we will see parallels in the drive to communicate which is uh, I think an innate drive that we bring to the creation of art and to the creation of language. So I'm going to start with something that should draw your attention, the aesthetic of this face, uh, the eyes that we can't resist, the uh, symmetry, the skin that we love to touch. Uh, But the object of the conversation today is not really to talk about the um, outward visage of this face, but to talk about what's going on inside that little mind. Uh, what's going on inside that little mind is indeed a beautiful thing. And uh, we're continually surprised by what infants demonstrate they can do as they try to acquire any of the complexities of, of human traits such as language. So I'm going to um, illustrate what we've learned about learning uh, in the past decade and where that work is going and try to draw parallels when possible with the work on the creation of art and also to uh, tell you when we know something about the uh, origins of this capacity in uh, other animals. So again, I want to start with a puzzle. Here's a puzzle about language acquisition. Uh, The fact that there is a critical period in our ability to learn a first or a second language is apparent uh, in all of the studies that have been done across the last um, 40, 50 years. Uh, what's interesting about this curve is it's the reverse of a typical learning curve. We think as adults we can learn things better. We use our superior cognitive skills to approach any task. But what you see here, if you want to find your age on the horizontal axis uh, and uh, (laughs) uh, predict your language skills on the vertical axis as a function of age, uh, what you see is that the uh, babies and young children are geniuses between their birth and about seven years of age. They can simply... Uh, be uh, immersed in a new culture and absorb uh, that language that that has been agreed upon by that culture to serve to uh, share ideas with one another. And as you go from the age of 7 towards 10 and then towards 15, and behold, if you're beyond the ages of 17 to 39, it's really quite difficult. If you're trying to learn Tagalog, I feel your pain. Uh, It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. And so what we're trying to understand in uh, the um, ontogeny and phylogeny of languages, is what is it that makes uh, us create this ability in the young to acquire new languages and then sort of locks us in and uh, doesn't allow us to easily uh, penetrate the rules of, of another language. And so we're starting with the babies and trying to understand what is it that they're putting to work in that early period, and what do they lose as they age? Or what is it that causes? While we all agree on this curve, there's not a scientist who disagrees with this curve. The explanation is hotly debated. What is it about aging that um, allows us to find it so difficult to, to learn a new language, even when the desire is there? So I'm going to tell you today that it's not just computation. The traditional approaches have uh, pointed to a, a, a kind of modular approach to um, to language learning and that it's hugely computational. We have demonstrated it's very computational. Babies are taking statistics as they listen to us talk. It's a marvelous thing, and it's very, very interesting, a kind of passive Uh, capability that they extract as we talk some of the statistics of the language. It shapes their brains and leans them towards a particular language. But the surprising thing that I want to introduce today is how complex uh, the situation is that allows that computation to be taken. So there's a a huge social interaction component that seems to be essential to the um, use of the computational skills that, that babies put to work. Now, how do we know this? Well, we've been looking at infants across um, many, many different cultures using either behavioral measures as illustrated here, and I won't go into detail. But in eight or nine different countries, we've been testing babies by having them sit on their mother's or their father's laps while we entertain them with toys. And we have them listen to the sounds of various languages. And then we change the sound from one to another to see if the babies will orient towards the change in the sound coming from the loudspeaker uh, so here we have a loudspeaker producing a sound, baby sitting on the mother's lap, um, a distractor toy keeping the baby's attention here. The sounds are coming out of the loudspeaker ba, 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 ba. When it changes to pa, if the baby turns, something magic happens in the black box. Six-monthers find this very, very exciting. and in about 20 trials you can train babies all over the planet to do this little task we test all languages uh, the sounds of all languages of the world and ask what can babies do what do they come with what machinery allows them to um, or not to discriminate the sounds of the world's languages we can also use brain measures uh, event related potentials babies wear a little cap we're sensing the electrical activity the electrical activity signals their ability to distinguish the sounds so what's the answer to the query The query is, can infants uh, discriminate? Can they discern the important differences that are going to indicate meaningful differences between words a few months from the age that you see them uh, here, which is about six months? And the answer is yes, they're universalists. They're citizens of the world. No matter what sound, from what language, from what culture you present to babies, they can hear the distinctions. And this is surprising because the parents sitting in back of them and all of us have a complete inability to do that. We're language-bound listeners. We can hear the distinctions between the languages used in our cultures, language or languages. We are not able to discern the differences. Japanese adults cannot hear the difference between R and L no matter how much training. The language doesn't uphold that distinction. They don't use it. They cannot distinguish it. But the surprise then comes is in that babies who start out at this point, so these are Japanese and American babies tested at six to eight months, either with head turn or event related potentials, There's 65%, way above chance, very, very good. And then two months later, something very interesting happens. American babies, uh, for whom R and L signals the difference between important words, get much, much better. And Japanese babies get much, much worse. So something's happening in that little space of time To create the citizen, take the citizen of the world and turn them into a culture bound listener when, right before words are acquired. So the question is what's going on during that period? This is a very sensitive period where the kids are mapping what it is that we're saying. And I'll tell you two things. First, it's computation. They truly are using statistical techniques to plot, in a sense, mentally plot, the distribution of sounds they're hearing from us. And their discrimination depends on the relative distributions of the sound. You can can up the probability that they can hear the distinction or lower it by changing the distribution of sounds that they hear over a couple of minutes. So there's a powerful computational mechanism that's operating in infants. But I'm here today to tell you something about the social complexities, the social mechanisms that this drive to communicate and the information they take from us as they listen to us speak that it seems to enable this process. So for any of you who have ever talked to an infant or watched anyone else talk to an infant, you know it produces a fairly unique kind of signal. If I plot the physics of it, you see something like this. On the top record, it's labeled AD, adult directed speech. The bottom record is labeled ID for infant directed speech. And the eyeball test will tell you these are vastly different signals. And if you had your uh, ears attuned to, to it, you would notice immediately that these are very different signals. Uh, the mother on the uh, adult record, adult-directed record, is saying, I had a little bit, and the doctor gave me bendectin for it. So it's an ordinary uh, tone of voice for a, an adult female. It's not boring, but it's not wild. it doesn't have wild excursions in pitch. But then this same mom turns to her two-monther sitting on her lap, And she does something akin to music. She says, can you say, ah? Say, ah. Hey, you. Say, hi. Hi. I cannot do that without a baby in my hands, right? (laughs) Uh, So she does something that musicians do perceive as music. It's very melodic. It's very, the excursions are, she jumps an octave in pitch on average. uh, And the excursions are wild. And it's a very pleasing sound. You immediately hear the emotion in the voice. Uh, It is something that graduate students like listening to in a foreign language when they're very stressed out because it's immediately soothing. Motherese, parentese, fatherese, because we all do it regardless of culture. It's universal. Um, Is a very pleasant signal to listen to. And infants, typically developing infants, are very attracted to them. So if you give them a little test in the laboratory and allow them to choose between infant-directed and adult-directed speech in any language, they'll do whatever they have to do to turn on infant-directed speech, even if you create just a pure tone of it. So if you extract all the words and simply let them listen to (coughs) adult-directed speech, as opposed to (coughs) that's infant-directed speech, they will pick the latter. So we we have a universal phenomenon we have infant interest in that phenomenon and the question is what good does that do for children we have subsequently learned that uh, motherese signals are simpler semantically, simpler syntactically and from a phonetic standpoint they're much more beautiful meaning they are, the stretched out vowels and sounds of motherese are clearer more distinct versions of the phonetic units of the language which we think is excellent for the baby brain as they map the signal so kids' attention to infant-directed speech as a signal they're very, very attracted to is important. And in fact, we may have, in the selection of motheries over um, a computer-generated analog that is created using the tones that are in speech, but uh, mimicking them with pure tones so that you've got a chord that changes over time, we may have a diagnostic marker for autism. What I show you in this slide is a preference for speech uh, versus non speech analogs in children with autism. And I'll play you the two signals. They, this is a choice that toddlers are making by making slight head turns to the right or left. Here's the mother signal Look what I have. Look what I have. It's a pot. So a mother is saying, Look what I have. It's a pot. And here's the non speech analog. <laughs> That's a very strange signal. And typically developing children will listen to it once or twice but not prefer it. Children with autism prefer it hands down over and over. You see the relative preference in the height of these uh, bars. Now this is exciting in toddlers because it's a test that can be run at 15 15 weeks reliably. And so we're now in process testing children, siblings of children with autism to see if it's a diagnostic marker. So the the message here is that there is something about social engagement that seems to be important in the language learning process, and it gets even more complicated, uh, the um, necessity and the interest in in a brain that cares about uh, social interaction, when we look at experiments like the following. So here again is a picture of the data when you go to Taiwan and uh, test babies there and test babies in America on a Chinese contrast now this is a contrast important to Mandarin but not to English to my ears it sounds like she, she but to any Mandarin speaker that sounds totally distinct and my graduate students who speak Mandarin are always saying Dr. Cool, can't you try a little bit harder on this contrast because it's easy to hear <laughs> as easy as ba and pa But I cannot do it. So we invented the following um, experiment. We had shown, as this slide does, that Taiwanese babies, by the time they get to 10 to 12 months, have gotten much better at this contrast, and American babies much worse. We decided to expose American babies to Mandarin in 12 very natural play sessions in, uh, in the laboratory. So it was as though we'd given babies the experience uh, that they had relatives who were Mandarin speaking and they came and moved in for six weeks and they talked to the babies on 12 different occasions over a 12-week period, starting at nine months when we think we're at a very sensitive uh, phase. And the question we originally started with was, uh, do babies' computational capacities allow them to compute the statistics on a brand new language when given to them for the first time? And so after this um, exposure we wanted to test them to see what they what they learned what does that do to the brain of the child. Now here is here's one of the sessions so you get a feel for the complexity especially socially of this setting. Jasper, Hi, 小小熊,漆漆在这里,好,好,有一天啊,小小... How's your mandarin coming along? <laughs> uh, Now watch the infant as they attend in these settings. They're very, very, very engaged in them. 一个绿色的圈圈,绿色的圈圈,绿色的圈圈,转一下,转一圈,嘿,一圈,再一次哦。Hey, 1, OK. So the question was, what do babies learn? What do we do to their brains by exposing them to 12 sessions? And of course, we had to run a control group, maybe just coming into the laboratory is very, very interesting and stimulates capacities that in language that would be general. So here's the outcome for the control group. These are the kids who had just come in for their 12 sessions and heard English speakers using the same books and toys, but they're the American graduate students speaking English. But compare them to the babies who'd come in to listen to Mandarin for 12 sessions, and they are statistically indistinguishable from the kids growing up in Taiwan who've been listening for 11 months, almost 11 months by this time. So we had seen in this uh, situation an amazing capacity to acquire information on the fly in a live situation, very, very natural in simple play that kids are absorbing the information. So in answer to our first question, yes, they can take the statistics on a brand new language. But our question was, what does the human being have to do with it? As we watched the interaction uh, between the infants and these foreign speaking tutors, and the eye movements and the complexity of the tracking the infants seemed to do, we were compelled to run the following experiment. So we had been videotaping all of the tutors, and we created these beautiful, uh, you know, on a plasma television set, uh, exposures that were run in exactly the same way. So another group of babies got the exact same experience with regard to what language they heard, uh, but not in the presence of a live human being. It was simply um, a videotaped playing versus an audio tape. So there were two more groups brought in, audio alone and auditory visual in a kind of DVD. Now, there are lots of people selling tapes saying teach your baby French or whatever um, with video or audio. So that was our question. And the answer is, what did we do to the baby? Well, here's the result for the audio group. No learning whatsoever. Here's the result for the video group. Absolutely no learning whatsoever. So the point of this illustration is that there is something in social interaction that the babies are deriving from being in the presence of a person. With all of the emotion that we were seeing, we noticed, for example, that babies waiting in the waiting room for the foreign-speaking tutors would watch the door eagerly, waiting to see when the foreign speaker would come pick them up, whereas babies in the video group were you know, not emoting. So there is something about the emotional content, the social exchange. Uh, biologists have said to me it's pheromones that, that are communicated in the presence of a live human being. You need a social human being to uh, learn, at least at this age, in this style of language experiment. So it raises all of the issues about what is the uh, creation of language uh, about what is it? What part of it is the drive to communicate? What part of it is the um, interaction that takes place when humans try to uh, teach uh, each other something? And we wonder then: Are there parallels in the uh, animal kingdom for these what we think of as quite sophisticated skills? So we, I note that in bird, the development of birdsong, and I won't have time to go into it in detail. There are very intriguing parallels not only with the computational capacities and during a sensitive period. So we see here in songbirds a sensory learning period followed by a motor practice period. Same thing in babies. Babies are mapping as they listen to us speak in the first six to eight months of life and then they will begin to produce. And this drive to coo back and babble back to adults is very interesting. We also note that during that sensory learning period, certain bird species, but of course not all, need to be in the presence of another conspecific. So adult birds singing need to be there for baby birds, zebra finches in particular, to learn. So these social aspects of uh, communication learning seem to be not unique to humans, uh, and maybe the neurobiology of it can be explored and has been explored in birds in in a totally new way. I'm going to close with this. There's a lot going on in infant brains. There's a lot going on in our brains too, and we've seen today all the evidence of what imaging has produced. But having a brain imaging technique that works with infants 0 to 5 has not previously been possible. However, we're now uh, applying uh, MEG, magnetoencephalography techniques. This looks like a hair dryer. The graduate students like to call it the hair dryer from hell. But it is a completely non-invasive, totally safe... Uh, measurement tool that with sensors in the doer, it looks like this hair dryer type device, is picking up the activity of millions of neurons working together and which emit a, a magnetic field that changes as neural activity uh, goes forward. And so as you sit in the hair dryer, uh, the 306 sensors pick up the activity and can plot with millisecond, that's the advantage over FMI, millisecond accuracy and millimeter spatial localization act, you know, capacity. Now, we're very excited about this, not only because it's a device, non-invasive, noiseless, so unlike fMRI, it's not producing any noise, but here's what's fun. This is, uh, we're the first in the world to record uh, awake babies doing something interesting in an MEG machine in Helsinki. This is the machine we're going to buy. This is Emma who is listening to Finnish and Russian and English and we're looking at what her little brain is doing and we're obviously going to run experiments in which we're uh, able to see how she reacts when she's simply listening. You know, just computation alone as, as opposed to a live human being versus a television set. What happens in the brain as our motivation and drive to communicate uh, goes up because we're in the presence of another human being? So uh, we're very excited for the technologies that will allow us not only to look at the ontogeny of complex skills like language, but the capacity to appreciate and create art These are the skills that uh, make us human and can be compared uh, across species, and it's going to be a very interesting decade. So thank you very much.
4: I want to thank uh, the organizers for inviting me to talk about something that I'm not an expert in, the question of whether animals uh, have a concept of art. Um, And uh, having spent uh, quite a number of years investigating the cognitive abilities of chimpanzees, uh, their capacity for true intersubjectivity, the ability to reason explicitly about the mental states of themselves and others uh, on the one hand, and investigating whether they have abstract notions of causality, like uh, the ability to understand simple folk ideas of gravity or force. It's nice to return to the question of whether or not animals have a uh, a concept of art because it's actually something I did take a look at uh, a number of years ago when I first became interested in chimps. Of course, the problem was that was 30 years ago. I was only 15 at the time. Uh, And so I investigated the, the question with an adolescent's eye. And I thought rather than imposing my current biases upon the question, uh, I decided to take a look uh, at what the current state of evidence is uh, on the question of whether animals have a concept of art and share that with you today and let you uh, form your own opinions. What I don't think will be particularly useful to investigate is whether or not animals Produce artifacts that humans find aesthetically pleasing because there's overwhelming and abundance of ev- evidence for that. For example, the nautilus shell we we uh, find uh, obviously uh, uh, quite aesthetically pleasing, and an animal produces it. Uh, the bowerbirds' production of of their, of their uh, 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 structures for for uh, attracting mates uh, clearly have a strong aesthetic sense to human beings. Uh, and I don't even want to take a particular issue with the question of whether or not when a sp- a certain species engage in uh, certain activities which certain cultures call art, whether or not there are morphological constraints or even tighter perception action loop constraints on the activity involved, whether or not those we may share in common with those species, because I'm certain there must be. When a chimpanzee reaches with a paintbrush, visually orients toward the canvas, they're going to be bringing to bear much in common with what a human artist uh, uses when they do uh, the similar approach. And so I find very little uh, to argue with with uh, in, in, individuals who are still interested in the question of animal art, uh, such as Franz de Waal, who argues that looking at the drawings and paintings uh, made by uh, apes could probably tell us something about something about the origins of our impulses for art. However we could still find dramatic room to find reason for pause with a further conclusion uh, that, that DeWall uh, 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 makes, which is that, uh, nodding approvingly at Desmond Morris's analysis from the 19, and his wife's analysis from the 1960s, that... Um, Well, you know, there's a strong, deep parallel in the creation of something that we call art forms when we investigate chimpanzees' uh, painting, for example, and human infants' painting. After all, the conclusion that they tempt you with is that, well, you know, human babies start out very abstract as painters, and look at chimp art, it looks pretty abstract, but unfortunately, the poor ape gets stuck as an incomplete human being and never reaches true realism. That, I think, is worthy for our critical eye and to ask whether or not uh, th- that metaphor of, of apes as incomplete human beings is really uh, uh, doing the ape any justice at all. Uh, and something, uh, by the way, that, that should be noted is that this idea that, that, that small children, two-year-olds, are engaging in behavior uh, that's, that's just sort of uh, random abstract art uh, is belied by the fact that, uh, of investigations which show that even, from, even two-year-old children, for example, when they witness someone making a drawing, this circle in the middle, and there are two objects in front of that artist, uh, two uh, art objects that it could be, uh, the infant uses aspects of the, of the artist's gaze, uh, where they're looking, uh, where they're more directed toward, to determine later uh, what object they were drawing. So when they see this ambiguous picture in the middle, they'll either label it as object one or object two, depending on where the speaker was looking. So from very early age, the infant who can't even produce a circle that clearly is already buying into the intersubjective notion of art. Okay, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to present definitions of aesthetics and art to try to uh, put us into a box, but I do think it can provide some, uh, some landmarks for what we might or might not be talking about when we're interested in the question of whether animals produce art. So surely chimpanzees uh, don't have any branches of philosophy uh, in, their, in, their, in their social structure. So I, I think we can, we can maybe uh, shy away from even worrying about whether they make any critical judgments about art or any products and forms that they may produce. Um, but I think the second common definition of aesthetics is worthy of our, our, our undivided attention, which is that it's the study of the mind and emotions in relation to some sense of beauty. Uh, and that may well be a universal aspect of the human mind regardless of whether cultures around the world have a specific word for art or not uh, a sense of beauty and aesthetics in various domains uh, appears to be a, a universal aspect of human beings uh, and likewise uh, art is the qu- we might be able to anchor our uh, notion as just pr- the production of objects which we find beautiful, appealing, or more than ordinary significance wow Okay, but there's a tremendous conceptual slippage that I've noticed in in browsing through what might be called the animal art literature, to the extent that there is such a thing, um, uh, which is going from two simple premises to this conclusion. The premise that, well, an animal produces a form that has some kind of aesthetic form to human beings, the animal intended to produce that form Uh, to the conclusion that the animal intends to produce an aesthetically pleasing uh, form. Why? Because we can easily accept the first two premises as being true and finding great fault with this conclusion, Uh, especially this premise that animals intended to produce that form Uh, The the animal has an intention, it has a goal of of marking, uh, for example, in the case of painting, paint on a canvas. Uh, But that doesn't mean it intended to produce an aesthetically pleasing form that humans recognize. And the same thing, of course, goes true with any cultural artifact that a given culture might discover that an animal has made and labeling it art. Okay, well, what's at stake here? I mean, what's really at stake? I mean, it seems to me that, that, that this claim that many people ha- have, are, have made, which is that, well, if animals are capable of something like art, if they have a sense of aesthetics, then it might force us to re-engage with animals in a different way. That it might redefine our relationships with them and hence create a better world that humans can relate to animals in a better way. Well, that's certainly possible. If it were true that animals had some sense of aesthetics, it might well redefine our relationships with them. But there's another possibility, uh, a possibility that I've become very sensitive to over the years, which is that every time we attempt to anthropomorphize animals incorrectly, when we anthropomorphize them incorrectly, we do a great disservice to our relationship with them. And I think that's a possibility we need to investigate about the question of animal art as well. Okay, well, What categories am I going to explore very briefly? I'm just gonna touch on a couple. Uh, Animal music, animal dancing, and of course, animal painting. Many of the, the public is absolutely convinced that animals can uh, create music. Uh, they can be uh, brought into the, uh, the human uh, realm of musical creation by, for example, training elephants uh, in percussion. Uh, by training them, uh, there's entire orchestras of elephants that have been brought together. I invite you to watch these videos on YouTube. They're quite striking. Um, of course, all of this is under the tutelage and guidance of human beings. Um, Uh, And on the one hand, we might conclude, well, so what? I mean, uh, human infants are under the tutelage and guidance of human beings as well. And perhaps uh, what these elephants ultimately create, although more sonorous to some than other ears, uh, might well be uh, within the realm of of animal art. The critical question, though, of course, from the territory that I've staked out, is whether or not there's a capacity to to see what they're doing, to interpret what they're doing, as having any aesthetic sense uh, at all. Whether an elephant, for example, could, could connect well-formed elephant music with well-formed uh, elephant social behavior. If it could group those two things together, we'd have some uh, understand, uh, reason to suspect that they had uh, an aesthetic sense of music. I was going to say uh, a bit about um, a, a bird song. I thought I thought uh, uh, Pat was going to mention that a little bit, but she got a little cut for time. Um, but the same question applies there, uh, right? Uh, birds produce songs that we find musically appealing, but do they aggregate any aspects of those productions under the rubric of something that might be called aesthetics? I don't think there's any evidence for that, but perhaps we shouldn't be uh, too quick to, to, to uh, turn away from it before we investigated. Uh, Jane Goodall uh, has some opinions about animal music. Uh, she uh, uh, is of the opinion that the drumming on tree trunks of chimpanzees is a, a form of, of music. And so I thought I'd mention to you a little bit about the history of our knowledge about chimpanzee uh, drumming behavior on tree trunks. Uh, R. L. Gardner was one of the first individuals, a famous Victorian explorer, a very popularizer of uh, exploring uh, the unknowns. Uh, and he w- made a number of visits to Africa. Uh, he built a giant cage for himself to live inside of reversing the human-animal relationship up to that point uh, for media purposes he thought it would, it would sell more books um, but he did let himself out um, and ventured into the jungles uh, with his pet chimpanzee that he acquired locally, Moses uh, and he listened to the stories of locals telling them about various uh, aspects of chimpanzees' social behavior now unfortunately in his book he doesn't always distinguish very clearly between what he actually observed and uh, what the locals simply told him. Uh, But one of the most amazing aspects of his accounts were of the Kanjo Drum Festival. Uh, He no doubt uh, heard chimpanzees drumming uh, in the distance, and the locals told him that the chimpanzees had festivals in which they actually made drums out of clay covering uh, large areas of peat and drummed on them after they got drunk with rotting uh, fruits that had fermented. And he recounts this in great detail uh, in, uh, in his uh, 1906 volume. And in, in its reprint, he uh, actually says that he deposited a piece of the clay drum in the Buffalo National Museum with actually the chimp's fingerprints still in the wet clay. Uh, when I was young, my sister and I went into in the, the museum to take a look, and there are a lot of uh, things that he did donate to the museum, but there was no Kanjo drum that we could track down. Uh, now, the, the fact uh, of the matter is that chimps do engage in drumming behavior, it does appear to serve some communicative function, it can be heard from large distances uh, away, up to a kilometer away, males can uh, uh, hear other males uh, drumming on trees, and there's various uh, possibilities for what, uh, how this might function into their communicative behavior. Uh, Others have argued that uh, the uh, drumming behavior may actually have a symbolic function. Uh, Christoph Bosch uh, uh, and uh, Hedwig Bosch Aschermann uh, claimed that they had evidence for the actual symbolic functioning of of drumming, that it was communicating specific messages. Unfortunately, only one chimp, uh, Brutus, actually engaged in the the symbolic aspects of this. Uh, Apparently, he was claimed to have three messages uh, relating to one beat, two beats, or three beats. Three messages would tell the other group members to take a one-hour break. Um, uh, Two drum beats in certain contexts and locations might be to change direction, and a certain other combination of drum beats might mean uh, a two-hour rest. Unfortunately, this has only been observed in the Thai forest, and unfortunately, it ended very suddenly and was never seen again after a a, a breakup of the group. So uh, I don't know. Perhaps this is another area in which we might investigate uh, the possibility of of this phenomenon. Okay. Okay. But what's indisputable, I think, is that the perception action loops that I described earlier uh, clearly anchor chimpanzee drumming behavior uh, and many uh, animal, uh, uh, quote, artistic expression to things that human beings do. We can't deny that, um, but at the same time, we have to step back and ask, How much are we attributing uh, of human understanding of art and aesthetics to these animals, and how much do they understand themselves? Uh, Wolfgang Curler uh, uh, was very interested in the question of animal uh, art, in particular the question of animal dancing. It should come as no surprise uh, to anyone who un- knows the history of Gestalt psychology that Kurler, uh, 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 along with Wertheimer and Kafka, were very interested in questions of aesthetics. It was one of the foundational aspects of Gestalt psychology. And so when Curler found himself Uh, uh, on the the island of Tenerife for a lot longer than he hoped during World War I, uh, studying chimpanzees, he reported uh, fascinating aspects of their behavior that he felt were worthy of consideration under the rubric of aesthetics. Uh, And in particular, uh, these uh, strange dances that chimpanzees would engage in in their everyday play behavior. Now, Curler didn't draw any uh, profoundly strong conclusions, but I thought I would share with you uh, the, the 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 beautiful uh, aesthetic form of of many of these behaviors. Um, and in fact, um, I don't do this to trivialize them at all. Uh, I think it's important to to uh, note, oops. It's important to note that they uh, when you take a, a look at them in great uh, detail. If I get it to go, there we go. when you take a look at them in great detail, you can see the the transfer of weight to the back heel as the chimp spins, but I didn't do it right, and pirouettes, um, all of which are morphological constraints Uh, that if the animal wants to engage in that behavior for whatever reason, whatever enjoyment it derives from it, uh, whatever whatever motivations it has, it must follow some of those constraints in order to produce that form. But again, the question looms largely. As we watch chimpanzees engage in those dancing behaviors, is that something they uh, understand as any sort of shared representation of anything uh, with other members of their own kind? Well, finally, what about the question of of animal painting? Uh, It's actually uh, quite a a big business now. Um, uh, Anyone who's watched any YouTube videos recently about uh, elephants painting, for example, will be struck at uh, their uh, skills. Uh, Here's an elephant uh, uh, painting picture of an elephant. Um, uh, And if you think that's a little crude, uh, I invite you to watch the full... Uh, unedited demonstrations of elephants painting pictures exactly like this uh, picking up the brush and guiding them along with a human trainer uh, very carefully applying pressure for drop, go, change direction, up, down, etc. under the control of human beings Uh, of course if you're interested there's entire websites devoted to gaining uh, access to to elephant art you can pay as as much or as little as you want for it Uh, and tourists frequently do pay quite a bit It's cropped up for a long time in zoos, but recently uh, it's become a major revenue stream uh, for zoos around the United States. In fact, I could not find a major zoo that didn't hold an animal art auction recently, including uh, zoos in this area. Uh, The the San Diego Zoo, these are meerkats, uh, which have been dipped in paint and asked to run across canvases. the trivial uh, sales, uh, reproductions of animal art book, uh, bookmarks for $2, but many of these paintings will go for uh, hundreds if not thousands of dollars. Now, some people will claim that what you just saw in those previous things is absurd. Right? Uh, Franz de Waal would claim that, look, none of that has anything to do with true art. Okay? Those are just animals just I mean, humans just goofing around. But if you watch chimpanzees, Franz de Waal claims. Uh, You will see in their deliberate and effortful strokes that they actually do something which looks like art to humans. Well, I think that last conclusion is pretty indisputable, Um, but, but de Waal wants to make a stronger conclusion which is that the apes are actually doing something qualitatively different than other animals. And in fact, the famous chimpanzee Congo uh, in the 1960s, uh, his paintings frequently sold for upwards of $25,000. Uh, there was quite a controversy about what was abstract art. Was Congo the chimpanzee um, suddenly threatening the very foundations of human art? Uh, now, to De Waal's eyes, a chimpanzee, dipping uh, a paintbrush into a, a, a smatter of paint that's very carefully controlled by the human beings, otherwise it becomes a big purple mess, um, and, then, and then deliberately making strokes on, on the page, uh, enjoying it, um, never requesting to do it, but always eagerly doing it when presented, uh, to the fact that to his eye, that looks more like human art. Um, you know, seems a bit specious to others. Um, there's uh, counter uh, claims by individuals. That, Look, eight, what, what do you mean? Elephants do the same thing. Someone recently sent me a video of a British artist that flew to Thailand to be with one of these elephants and was just marveling at the expressive abilities of, of these elephants. Um, and uh, many species have gotten into the fray. Uh, th- uh, to think that these are staged photos and are, are something very different from what chimpanzees do is really to sort of miss the point. These animals can, I- I- because of various uh, uh, aspects of this motor uh, and visual activity, uh, actually find it uh, reinforcing and rewarding. But of course, if you step back and you really look at some of the chimp pictures, I mean, you know... The, they're pretty striking, and, and uh, some of them even look r- uh, relatively representational. I mean, someone once told me that this particular one looked like two ants fighting. Oh, I'm sorry, that was by that famous French painter Escargot. <laughs> there have been very few claims, and I, I, want, I want to end on this question of representational art. Uh, there have been very few claims that chimps can actually draw representationally. Uh, that they can actually represent anything in their drawings. Um, But even here, there are claims that they can. Jane Goodall thinks they do. Uh, One chimp drew a zigzag on a page and claimed it was a ball bouncing, and and she found that uh, worthy of consideration, uh, and perhaps we should. Coco the gorilla. Uh, which we heard about earlier. Uh, uh, we'll put paint on a page in various ways, um, produce these artifacts that we call uh, paintings, and then label them. The train will ask, what are they? Uh, uh, my favorite, uh, stink gorilla more. Uh, now we might, we might need to know whether or not the signs of the gorilla actually are anchored to any kind of symbolic system in which the, the gorilla can actually communicate with us. That would be important to note. Uh, here are some transcripts very quickly uh, taken off the COCO website. Uh, It was an online chat where there was a moderator. People would email questions in. The moderator would ask them to Penny Patterson, Coco's trainer. Penny would sign. uh, Coco would reply. Moderator, Coco, have you taught any gorillas to use sign language on your own? Patterson, good question. She signs it to Coco. Myself. Patterson, well, part of the answer may be that she's taught us. Moderator, she's really creative. Patterson, she's acknowledging that in her answer. (laughs) Here's another one. Coco, are you happy? Coco, fine. Moderator, does she have hair, or is it just like fur? Patterson, she has hair. Coco, fine. Patterson, she has fine hair. It's beautiful. (laughs) Moderator, Coco, tell us what you look like in your own words. Coco, flower. Patterson, well, one of her scrunchies has a big flower on it. Coco, eat now. Uh, Moderator, Coco, what's the name of your cat? Coco, no. Patterson, she just gave a soft vocalization. Moderator, I heard that soft puffing. Moderator to Coco, do you like to chat with other people? Coco, fine nipple. Well, nipple rhymes with people. She doesn't do people per se. She was trying to do a sounds like. Well, look. Suffice it to say, the claims for representational art, a lot of apes have gotten in. Uh, Mojo, one of the early sign language training apes, was supposedly produced a painting bird. Of course, the banana-like structure was actually produced by the human. Uh, The scribble was produced by uh, uh, Mojo. Uh, This is a great one. Name this. Uh, The trainer signs uh, uh, Mojo, name this. Mojo signs name this, and that's the title of the painting. (laughs) Okay. Well, in conclusion... uh, Some individuals think that, uh, to be objective, we still have a lot of room to go before we know whether these productions, whether they're dancing, music, or paintings are art to the artist, the animal artists themselves. Well, that's possible. We may be a long way from knowing. On the other hand, uh, we may may already be there. I think trying to ask what on earth a gorilla, or a chimpanzee, or a sea lion, would make of an animal art auction is worth asking. Uh, what would a gorilla say about a painting that it, that it signed was Applechase uh, a minute later, an hour later, a day later? Are they artifactual creations that are part of a, a shared communicative system, a representational system? Well, it's just possible that those paintings don't mean anything at all to these animals. They, in the act of creating them, the animals experience emotions, and experience pleasure, but they don't mean anything culturally to the animals. In the same way that whether or not chimpanzees are alive on this planet 100 years from now doesn't mean anything to chimpanzees or any other species on this planet. And so I would suggest that despite how much they speak to us, look at those eyes that Pat Kuhl was talking about earlier, They overlap with us enough. They call to us. They speak to us. But but they belie the point that the fact that chimps will be extinct in another 50 years is our responsibility, not theirs. We've created a planet because of a unique set of cognitive abilities that give us stewardship over it. Whether or not chimps are alive to investigate their rudimentary, whatever they are, artistic and aesthetic abilities 50 years from now will depend on decisions we make today. Thank you. (laughs)